and welcome to another episode of Trinity College Dublin Talks. I'm Tom Malloy and, and with us this morning is Professor Fred Sheedy, who's a Usher Assistant Professor in Immunology, obviously one of the most newsworthy parts of any university in these COVID days. Fred leads out on the, and I don't even know if I'm going to be able to pronounce this properly, but Fred, you'll, you'll correct me if I, if I get uh, the, the Macrophage Homeostasis Group. He also coordinates undergraduate teaching in immunology and actively mentors LGBT students and, and postdocs. So quite a lot of uh, different different interests there, uh, which 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 I hope to come to. So first of all, welcome welcome to the program. Fred. Thanks very much, Tom, and thanks for having me. Well, let's let's start with immunology. So you 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 trained in in the same lab as Luca Neal, who who obviously is is. Uh, become the kind of the, one of the de facto spokesmen of the, the COVID crisis. Uh, but you, 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 you specialize really in tuberculosis, which is kind of an unusual uh, illness, an illness obviously that ravaged Europe for, for decades in, the, in the, the, the last part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century, uh, uh, an illness that um, uh, inspired possibly the greatest novel ever written, The Magic Mountain. But an illness that today is 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 uh, still a huge problem in the developing world, but but not much of a problem in in this country. Although we see the odd, unusual outbreak. How is it, Fred, that you came to specialise in tuberculosis? What what brought you to to that particular disease? I wonder. Um, well, yeah, it's. I mean, it it. We have this long history in Ireland and across Europe, which even goes beyond the last century, it goes back um, to, to the Middle Ages. And TB has actually been with us since probably the dawn of agriculture. And the kind of um, the common view is that it crossed over from animals when we started domesticating cattle into humans, although there's some genetic data that suggests it might actually be the other way around. But it's one of the most ancient and possibly um, arguably the most successful pathogen. Um, of humans and up until last year uh, the last five or six years it was the uh, the largest killer and um, due to infectious diseases that overtook HIV AIDS there early in the, the 2010s and started to see a big resurgence worldwide and as you said um, uh, lots of people are infected but lots of people are actually dying from it but not here in Ireland or in Europe in developed countries it's all in sub-Saharan Africa so we don't really think about it so it's a major uh, like pressing global health problem um, and the World Health Organization deemed it a global health emergency back in the 90s and um, there's been a lot of efforts to uh, increase awareness around it increase diagnosis and treatment of it because there are treatments and there, there are diagnoses, so there, there's problems with all of them, which is one of the reasons it's such a successful pathogen. And there's been various groups like NTB, Stop TB, various different efforts to increase that awareness, increase access to healthcare. And this has actually become threatened in the last year because of the, all the lockdowns worldwide due to COVID. So they actually think we've been set back about 12 years in those efforts. Wow. Um, last year so um it's going to be a, a big problem um worldwide going forward and i think one of the other things that covid has shown up about it is we have this vaccine for tb it's one of the first vaccines that was developed that was um bcg 
Um, for wax actually 100 years old this year since it was first used in humans in Paris and um, it's not a great vaccine it protects in the early childhood years against very serious forms of the disease and the protection probably wanes and again this is another reason why it's um, the, the, the disease hasn't been eradicated but we've had that for 100 years and there's been no new developments there is candidates but Wait, why why if, if this is the biggest killer you know, among these kind of types of diseases, and it's such an enormous problem, and and has been an enormous problem. I mean, we know that illnesses in the developing world are sometimes ignored because it's not profitable for research companies. But surely, in this case, you would expect there to be developments and 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 progress. Why why has there been no progress? There's a few reasons, and like you said, a lot of it is because it's in the developed world. There isn't that interest. There isn't the money being funded into the work. Um, so actually a big part of even the NTB program is to increase awareness around TB research, get more funding to it. Um, but there is a lot of scientific challenges for sure. There has been candidates. There's been really promising candidates in the last 10 years. Um, some of these were actually developed in Oxford where the, the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine was developed. They use very similar technologies and there's been I suppose the, res the preliminary results of them were actually quite disappointing. And one of the, the reasons is they don't give any um, extra protection over BCG. Um, the, I, I guess the bar is, it's not a very high bar in the case of BCG, but you have to go beyond that bar mm. with any new candidates. So that's one of the challenges. But then there's the scientific challenges, which is really actually how I came to be interested in TB and tuberculosis and how my career in immunology steered that way. And um, that's a whole other kettle of fish. And I suppose it's a challenge for the global health crisis, but it's, a, it's an, actually an interesting challenge for me because it, it gives me a job and gives me something to do and um, something to research on. Yeah, but I'm still struggling a bit to understand how a disease this this important, I mean, let's be crude. How many people would it kill every year? Uh, about 1.3 billion, I'm sorry, million um, back in 2019. And it'll probably be, a go, that was going down about 0.1 million every year for the last 10 years. That will probably start to go back up now. And um, the term, sorry. Yeah, I'm curious then, you, you, you're an immunologist dealing with one of the most lethal kind of illnesses in the world, albeit one that people in the West tend to ignore. Was it always obvious to you that something like uh, COVID would come along? I mean, I noticed, and it's fascinating me, that, that, that the Cabinet Office in the UK a couple of years ago wrote a list of the three biggest threats to the UK and a pandemic of a kind of infectious disease is one of them. It all seems, would have seemed a bit science fiction-y to, to most people a few years ago to think that a pandemic would sweep across uh, Western Europe and then the world, as it has done well, Asia and then Western Europe and then the world. Um, but was that kind of just totally obvious to you, given that in your lifetime something like this would happen? Yeah, I think a lot of scientists were expecting something like this. They kind of say every 100 years we're due something like this, um, given the history. And I think it, given the world we live in now with globalization, travel, um, uh, freedom of movement, um, that it's so much easier for these things to cross over and, and spread like wildfire all of a sudden. So I think, yeah, we've had some 
close encounters over the last few years. And yeah, I think it was bound to happen and spill over eventually. Um, I mean, you could argue that we could have done more initially if we understood the, the magnitude or different authorities could have behaved differently at the beginning. But I think we are where we are. There's not much point. We learn from this and we move on. What do you think the lessons from TB are in terms of dealing with COVID? I mean, I actually, in my own family, we had a TB scare a few years ago and, and we were all taken in and isolated completely from society until turned out we didn't have it but is that I mean more isolation is what springs to mind from my own experience but what 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 have you learned and what do you think the world missed out on? There's so many I think interesting parallels between the the situations if you go back 50 years maybe maybe probably 70 years now to when uh, TV was uh, epidemic in Ireland and there's so many interesting parallels with COVID. A lot of it is it, it was in um, ur- urban um, situations, people living in really close quarters, um, probably, the, and because of that, the, the poorer families. Um, so again, it was a, probably a, thought of as a disease of the poor. I mean, anyone could get it, and I mean, and we know that about COVID. But there, there is certain um, inequities, I suppose, associated with both. And there was a very big stigma then associated with uh, TB back in the days. People would be isolated, um, told not to go near them. You know, you, you don't want to spread the infection. And I hope we would have learned something um, from that, that uh, to, to deal with COVID. And I think we've done quite well with COVID. I mean, there's, there's definitely inequities, but I think our attitude in general is more less stigmatized I would hope. So that's perhaps one 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 positive that we're not we're not playing the ba- the blame game or regarding it as a disease that comes from I, I think initially perhaps people felt it was a disease that, that, that came from China and there seems to have been some kind of unpleasant kind of re- kind of insults but but people quickly got over that in a way didn't didn't they? I, I was actually I was I was I wanted to backtrack on that because I was fascinated that you said that it looks as if TB came from animals and then and then spread to humans and then perhaps back or, or we don't quite know or maybe we gave it to the badgers and the cows who knows is that the way all of these big kind of because the Spanish flu came from pigs in in the US didn't it so is that how all these um, big pandemics arise that they're kind of bred in domesticated animals yeah it seems I guess when they 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 jump host, they um, they encounter, they, they somehow adapt, they have these mutations and adapt to this new host. And in in their short replication cycle, we haven't had the chance to grow or to evolve and adapt because we have such longer life cycles. So they have this, I suppose, free reign and, and new terrain that they can grow and replicate in. And we don't have any existing immunity to them. And that's probably one of the reasons why and this zoonotic events uh, can lead to such um, some not novel pandemics. And yet, if you look at the history over the last few years, I mean, HIV probably had a, um, a simian origin um, going mean, back probably more than 100 years. Or, or, sorry, what, what does simian mean? It means uh, monkeys, chimpanzees. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so it came from. From animals, yeah. Yeah, but it probably I think there's some evidence that it has been circulating even in Africa for you know 
50 years, probably even more than 100 years in humans, you know, before it even made the jump uh, and, and became such a, such a problem. So yeah, these xenotic events are, are definitely, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of microbiology evolution, but there's immunology as well because they, they gain access to this new host and we have no pre-existing um, immunity against them. Um, uh, I mean, we have our innate immune system, which is what I work on, but uh, as you see, so some people will get rid of the disease, they'll never be sick, some people will get mildly sick, then some people um, will become uh, probably very severely ill, and that's probably due to... Uh, an unfair question, but I'm sure lots of people ask you this. <laughs> How do you see COVID playing out? You know, what's the big picture here? Is is this likely to be like TB that in 50 years time, your successors will be dealing with this and talking about it? Or do you think it'll kind of disappear like a lot of these viruses like SARS seem to have disappeared? I mean, is it is it something now that's going to be with us for the rest of our lives in some shape or form? Or is I, it flash in the pan? I'd say probably the, the latter. I think the, the original SARS, it disappeared because it was contained. And I think we're gone past that point with uh, SARS-CoV-2. Um, yeah, I think it's going to become somewhat endemic. Um, I had a really interesting discussion last night with a kind of a colleague and friend of mine um, who's, uh, she did a PhD with um, myself and Joe Keane here on TV, and she's now working over in London. And we're kind of talking about the, how this infection is going to play out. And we see all the mutations that are happening, especially uh, arising in areas where there's still uncontrolled replication. And I was arguing that, you know, I don't think with all the mutations that are occurring, we're not going to get these hugely vaccine resistant strains. That I think the vaccines mm -hmm. we have will still have um, some effectiveness against these uh, these new mutants. But um, I, I think what's probably going to happen is it'll gradually acquire these mutations and change slightly and slightly um, unless the whole world can you know um, puts out the fire at once which I'm not sure is going to happen and I think we'll probably have some form of it probably at much lower levels and it'll probably be changing bit by bit each year um, and we probably I would imagine have to develop new booster vaccines every year to the kind of prevalent strains um, but we can do that, and this is what's the, the great thing about it. We now have these technologies where we can easily develop um, uh, modified vaccines to target any, any new strains and hopefully roll them out with enough time if we keep the replication of it at, at, uh, and the spread of it at a low enough level. Um, and that's one of the amazing things about uh, what we've learned from it in terms of the vaccines and getting that critical mass behind vaccine development um, from companies, from academia, from governments to develop these technologies quite rapidly has been amazing. And, and the, um, the acceleration of the regulatory and approval process has, has been amazing. I think there's so much to, um, to even explain in that to, so that people know it's not that there were shortcuts taken, it's just that there's been this rapid acceleration of all stages of the process and people working a lot harder than, than they normally would. <laughs> okay, so essentially we can all expect to, to, to be getting a jab every couple of years to, to keep us immune to the latest variants. Is that is that what we're looking at? I would say unless the whole world locks it down um, all at once, I think there's always going to be little fires going on somewhere and, and things will spread out of that.
And um, I think because we're vaccinated, we'll have some resistance against it. But I think as things go on, if it does acquire more and more mutations, we probably need top ups every year or so or boosters that are modified to, to adapt to these. That's just an opinion. I mean, um, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, no, as you know, the situation could change next week. The, the rug has been pulled from us so many times. I mean, who could have predicted well, what happened at Christmas, you know? Um, Tell me about yourself. How did you get interested in this? Let's let's kind of go back to the to the, the let's say the fourteen year old Fred Sheedy. I mean, did you go up in a family of immunologists talking about vaccines for breakfast, or or where do you where 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 do you grow up? And you know, how did you realize that you were scientifically kind of built? Yeah. So the fourteen year old Fred and even younger Fred grew up in a small village in County Cork called Kilworth. And definitely not a, a family of immunologists. Uh, what was, I suppose, sacrosanct in my, in my house growing up in my home was GAA, and that was like the religion. And both my parents were uh, brilliant players in their day and um, did, you know, administrative and uh, coaching roles with various teams and had amazing success. So if that, that was the religion in my You're house. Well, then, are you? Uh, are you good at GAA as well, or did you rebel? Yeah. 14-year-old Fred probably wasn't, and uh, that's where my kind of interest, I suppose, of science began. Um, I, I, I mean, I have become a lot more interested in sports since, but I think I, as a child, I didn't have the, the mental interest in it. So it didn't matter if I was physically fast or uh, athletic, I just didn't have the mental interest in it as a child. Uh, so I was always reading books. I was always a little bit different from all the other kids. I had uh, encyclopedias. Uh, so my parents had Encyclopedia Britannica. I was always reading about outer space. Um, I was really into Star Trek. And then when I went to secondary school and um, started studying science, while I thought physics and everything was really interesting, when I started to learn about chemistry and molecular structure, and then I started to uh, learn about biology and apply actually all that stuff about uh, biochemistry, genetics to biology. I just thought that was so interesting. And I, I started to see that, I suppose, while growing up, all my questions were about the, the world out there, that actually a lot of the answers were in us. And I just thought that that was fascinating. That kind of led me then to uh, pursue a, a degree in genetics in UCC. And, um, and how did that work out for you? So it's a pretty that was probably a fairly new degree at that stage. I mean, you're not old. You're... Alert from Google password required. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, but you, you were, you were, um, you know, genetics wouldn't have been around for a long time as a standalone subject, was it? No, actually, the day I did my leaving cert biology exam that evening, there was the uh, first in, the, the announcement of the first draft of the. Um, sequence of the human genome by the UK, US governments and uh, the, the, the private companies there. And I remember uh, Bill Clinton saying that, uh, that the human genome was the most wondrous map uh, humanity had ever produced. And that really fascinated me. And I really want to be part, I suppose, of decoding and exploring that map. Uh, so genetics at the time was quite new. In UCC, we were the first class to, to do that course. And it was led very much by the schools of biochemistry 
and microbiology. So it was kind of right up my street. And actually then, because microbiology took such a kind of uh, a leading role in the teaching of it, that's when I became fascinated about um, pathogens, microbes, their interaction with the human body, and eventually then immunology. So interesting you mentioned Bill Clinton. I'm just thinking um, when my daughter was born, I remember Clinton making a speech saying, half of all people born today will live to be 100 and we need to plan accordingly. I think he was a, quite a friend of science, actually. And the, the political background must be very important for, you know, directing people towards STEM. I don't think politicians droning on about how important STEM is will lead young people into science. But making the connections, making the links, talking like that, uh, kind of quote that you can remember, that's probably how society becomes more kind of scientifically orientated. Yeah. And, and I imagine there's going to be huge demand for science subjects today because of, you know, what's happened in the, over the last 18 months or so. Uh, yeah. I think if there's political will, that it really can advance science. I mean, if you look at, um, it's probably not the best example of the space race and the, like that mm. was a political conflict, but it led to such technological advancements um, and maybe not for the right reasons, but I mean, it definitely advanced a lot. So after genetics and UCC, what, what, what did you do then, Fred? So yeah, as I said, that really led me to immunology, the interaction of microbes and, and the immune system. And um, uh, in particular, I guess, when I learned about two arms of the immune system, there's our adaptive immune system that vaccines take advantage of, it has memory, then there's this innate arm of our immune system that is meant to resist disease and stop it from developing. But at the time, we were learning a lot about that. And the, the, I guess there was a paradigm shifting in that this innate immune system isn't just nonspecific. There is molecules involved, cells involved that actually are quite specific, do certain things. And one of those is they're called toll-like receptors. So if you wanted to pursue research on in that uh, in Ireland, uh, Luke O'Neill was the person who was pioneering these uh, at the time. So I didn't, for a while, I didn't actually know I wanted to do research. Um, I'd mentioned my dad earlier. He always thought I was going to be an engineer or have a quite safe job in the industry. Mm. So the compromise, even when I was going down the life science route, was I would be a med lab scientist. So he didn't really understand, and I didn't really understand what research actually entailed. Um, so after I finished my degree, I, I, I knew I wanted to pursue immunology, that kind of area, but wasn't sure how. So I did um, a research assistant uh, role for a year with uh, Professor John Atkins, who was one of Ireland's kind of leading biomedical scientists. He had an amazing career in America, and he'd come back and set up a lab in UCC. He'd been instrumental, actually, in for helping form SFI at the time. Uh, so he gave me a position for a year, and I just fell in love with the research culture then and then just knew I wanted to do a PhD. And as I mentioned, my interest was in these uh, molecules of the innate immune system that Luke worked on. So I kind of knocked on his door till he, uh, till he took me on. And I was lucky enough to get IRC funding at the time to kind of pursue my PhD there. I'm sure you're being modest when you say lucky enough that that kind of funding doesn't come through luck, it comes through skill. But it's a very interesting point, the point you make about your father's expectations, you not being sure. And, and I think this is a really difficult thing, isn't it, for for students at 
post-grad level especially because yeah like a lot of these subjects are very new the career paths are not clearly defined at all you, you don't know what you're doing really and and there's no one to help you no one like you can't sit down with a career teacher and say I want to do this because no one gets it yeah how, how did you find the courage to to kind of gamble on your own future like that do you think um i guess taking time to find out what you want to do is important um and i guess not compromising because uh, i suppose <laughs> i say this at all stages of re- your career at any stage i could give up and pursue a much safer more financially rewarding um uh, job but I'm so, I'm so interested in this and I want to pursue my own questions and answer them that you have to remember that. Uh, I think the other thing as a scientist that you, you gain is a little bit of confidence but self-belief, you know, not, not, not being overconfident or cocky but believing in yourself. Um, at the time that I was kind of deciding to pursue a PhD, um, I also came out as gay, so I'm, I'm LGBT and I think coming to terms with that as well kind of um, pushed me forward because you spend, it was a different time in Ireland back then, although it's not that long ago, but we didn't have marriage equality, things were very different at the time. So you spend so such a, a, a big part of your life kind of hiding yourself and um, I think not letting yourself be who you want to be, that it can hold you back in other ways of your life. So I think coming to terms with that as well pushed me forward to do what I actually really wanted to do and, and, and to not compromise on that. So taking risks and finding out that the sky doesn't fall in in one yeah. area of your life helps you in another area to, to take risks. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and you mentioned in the career paths uh, earlier on. And yeah, it's very difficult going from undergrad to postgrad. But it's also difficult, I think, the next few stages once you've finished your PhD. Now, there is a lot of options um, now, a lot more options in um, in industries that are doing healthcare research, and especially in Ireland, there's a lot more these days. But if you want to stay in academia, um, you know, there's a lot of difficult decisions to be made then at a very, I think, vulnerable time in your life. You know, you're a young adult at that stage. Many mm. people want to be starting families and there's a lot of expectation that you might move labs or move countries. So, uh, and and for a lot of my staff who are LGBT also, there's added kind of um, complications. And that was my experience as well at the time because there wasn't marriage equality in a lot of uh, countries. Um, so that's something I'm quite cognizant now of now is uh, that transition and kind of helping people make the right decision and, and not like, not, um, not making them feel, I guess, shoot into one co- career path to do one thing because of expectation. That like, giving more options, I think, is important. Let's turn to that in, in one minute. I just want to ask one last question about the, the young Fred Sheedy, which is, it's not really about you. It's 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 about what qualities do you think are required to be a good scientist stroke kind of immunologist and and I, I, I I'm very struck by what you said about self-belief because that's always struck me and and having read a bit about immunology you know it, it sounds like you fail you fail you fail you fail you fail and then you, you you make a breakthrough but it can take many years so certainly a, a good dollop of self-belief is necessary to kind of keep 
not succeeding in the hope that one day you will make a really significant breakthrough that that could you know let's let's uh, call a spade a spade could save tens of thousands even millions of lives um so let's say say self-belief is a given <laughs> but what other what other qualities do you think uh, are helpful well actually i would say <laughs> the opposite i think well one of the main qualities that is essentially is curiosity and asking questions want that thirst for knowledge and i think that's something that a lot of our students coming in have what i think uh, what what a lot of them don't have is that self-belief and that ability to pick yourself up and move on and um i mean they they, they talk about resilience a lot you need a lot of resilience but i like to say that it's self-belief because i think that's what picks you up and and makes you resilient um and I, I mean i don't mean to say a lot of our students don't have that but i think that's the thing that helps you stand out actually um what else would be important um, in, in the immunology field in that area i think something that's really important and might get kind of overlooked is um a, a desire to do good and to do something for the public good um, and i mean we've seen example the, 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 the prime example of it in the last year that immunology research has been put to to such good i think that desire to help people and, and to, to do something good um, has to kind of inspire you as well and that you can see that your work can have that good and you can translate it, it is really, really important. And I mean, that helps you develop a career as well. So uh, a healthy dollop of ego and idealism. <laughs> uh, now, let's, let's turn to the last bit of your, you know, you're, you're a man with many, many kind of hats. And, and this is, this interests me, this, that, that you, you have this kind of area of expertise around LGBT and and science and you know how to help people uh who may need a helping hand what 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 what's perhaps i suppose the difference between uh somebody who falls into that category and uh you know a heterosexual student why 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 do we need to distinguish here what 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 where can you help or um so one of the things that i think is really important and it's not just in lgbt issues it's a lot of, I suppose, minorities, um, various types of minority, ethnic, otherwise, um, is visibility and having role models there for people that are coming on. And I think when you see someone who's like you um, in, in a role that you want to, to, to be in, that inspires you to do it. So I think that's really important that we need to have visibility and, and um, role models for all minorities across the spectrum. Um, I think the other issue that LGBTQ um, students in, in STEM face is that issue of legislation and, you know, if it's legal for them to be openly um, LGBT in countries that they might be working in. And thankfully, the last 10 years has seen a, a huge improvement in that. Um, but there's still countries worldwide where, you know, you mightn't want to end up working, you might want to go for field work. Mm. Um, so that's something we need to be cognizant of, I think. Um, uh, I mean, the, I mean, out of the LGBT community, I think trans uh, students and, and trainees 
face a really tough time. And I think it's really important that we're inclusive of that and, and cognizant of that in the next few years. I think that's the, the next big breakthrough we, we need to make in, in, in uh, I suppose, human rights. And um, I think the other thing is what I kind of alluded to earlier, uh, the kind of, I don't want to call it the psychological damage, but the psychological impact of growing up, I guess, in a heteronormative environment. And perhaps, I mean, not everyone does this, but some will definitely hide themselves for a certain length of time. And the impact that can have on you, both personally and professionally, that it, it might hold you back. And, you know, for things like writing grants, maybe you, you aren't as super confident and you don't pitch yourself as well as you should. So having good mentors to kind of help you with that and, and overcome that. And so I have been involved in some in some networks that um, are cognizant of all these issues and are trying to work with, with LGBT, LGBT scientists worldwide to kind of um, improve these issues like um, visibility, uh, grant writing, things like that, and, and increasing awareness, I suppose. And so that's what you say about um, role models and uh, forgive me if this sounds stupid, I, I, I'm thinking that in the arts one can think of, I suppose, many great figures from Leonardo da Vinci downwards who, who belong under the LGBT umbrella, but it's harder to think of people in the sciences, or is it just that I, I just don't know the names? Are there one or two names you could throw out that might I mean, surprise this one would be Alan Turing. Yes, yeah, um, actually, that's a great example, isn't it? Because not yeah. any... Uh, was he gay but he, he really suffered for it, suffered for it, it yeah it, you know, to a ludicrous degree that 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 that, that kind of impacted on on the research in a kind of destructive way for, for britain yeah yeah um so i yeah i mean I and mean, that's something i kind of struggled with for a while as well as thinking how do i you know be a role model for people but you know you don't want to go into a classroom and announce that here i am or <laughs> you know and so there there is, I suppose, subtle things you can do. You can wear pins and stuff like that. Um, but actually, I think social media has been really great in this, being having a, a presence on it and being open about who you are and, and connecting with people worldwide um, has been a great way to, to be visible without, you know, having to announce yourself or to, you know, um, yeah, a great way to connect with them. and. It, yeah on a professional level and you get to show off your science, you get to show off what your team are doing, things like that, and can, and, and meet scientists worldwide that you maybe wouldn't have met otherwise, mm. especially right now because we can't go anywhere. <laughs> well, look, Freshidi, thank you very much indeed, Ash Professor of Immunology. Really grateful that, uh, that you could join us today. Uh, I'm not sure that I'm Delighted to hear that we'll probably all be having injections every couple of years for the rest of our lives, but They're that's hardly your fault. Very <laughs> Thanks for all the work. Great talking to you. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, Tom.